Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, uh, to another episode of Audio Judo. Uh, this is Matthew. And I'm Kyle. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us here uh, on your podcast of Musical Discovery. If you enjoy Audio Judo, you might enjoy one of the other podcasts we produce as well, uh, Throughline, where host Christian investigates the common theme running through an album. Uh, that'll be starting its second season coming up very shortly here. Uh, the other one is Audio Judo Does Jazz, where host Chris talks about the history and stories behind some of your favorite jazz albums. Uh, or if you don't have a favorite jazz album, he might help you find one. That'll hopefully be back at the beginning of next year. Um, all three of the Audio Judo podcasts are proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, Pantheon Podcast is the home of music podcasts on the web. Uh, they have have over a hundred podcasts in network, uh, and there's something there for everyone, uh, including Audio Judo. When you're done listening to Audio Judo, uh, you can also uh, find all the others on PantheonPodcasts.com. Uh, Pantheon recently became the home of the official Metallica podcast, The Metallica Report. So if you're a fan of metal, uh, go check that out. It's really good. They've also uh, recently, I've been listening to a show called Who Cares About the Rock Hall, which uh, suddenly became very poignant. Um, well, that's gonna, relevant as hell right, right now, isn't I, it? I'm hoping they're going to do a, an episode on uh, what's his name? <laughs> Jan, <laughs> Jan Wiener? Jan Wiener becoming a, a sexist, racist piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> well, 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 hold on. In my opinion. Be- becoming? Well, he's uh, always uh, been true. that. About him being a sexist, racist piece of shit, in my opinion. It covers legally. It's like all of my opinions about Rolling Stone magazine just suddenly were justified (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah it's called who cares about the rock hall Uh, it's hosted by joe uh, quizala and Kristen stoddard and the whole premise behind it is joe tries to get uh, Kristen and guests that come on the show to give a crap about the rock and roll hall of fame it's pretty good it's really funny uh it's another one to check out when you're done listening to audio judo yes for this episode kyle right back to the 70s right Uh, i'm starting to think that we uh we should rename the show Uh, audio (laughs) judo does the 1970s audio judo listens to albums from 19 1969 to 1981. I think that's it. It's crazy. I think that's a good idea. But, you know, I mean, if I'm going to pick one from the 70s, why not pick what might be one of the greatest albums to come out of the 70s? Maybe one of the best albums of all time, in a lot of people's opinions, with what might be considered one of the best songs of all time, in a lot of people's opinions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You start naming off great rock records, right? You start realizing how many of them were released during this period. Mm -hmm. And this is just one more. Which one is it? It's uh, Queen's A Night at the Opera. Mm -hmm. 
this is one that uh, I honestly kind of avoided doing for a while, even though I do have a little bit of, I, this is an album I listened to when I was very young. My mm. mom had it on cassette. It's also an album that I have owned, I think on every medium except maybe eight track. <laughs> That tracks, actually. That makes sense. I've got the album. Oh, look still. at that vinyl. Yeah. Uh, that's an original vinyl, too. In its plastic yeah. sleeve. Yeah. Uh, which apparently is bad for them. So Plastic sleeves? Yeah. Plastic yeah. sleeves are apparently bad for vinyl. So, uh, But I bought yes, it that It increases way, so. the humidity. Yeah. yeah. Have, it, had it, have it now on vinyl. I had a cassette that belonged to my mom when I was very young that I listened to so much it wore out the cassette. Uh, mm. Had it on CD for many years. Obviously, I have a digital copy of it. Really is a wonderful, great album. It's fun to listen to from beginning to end. It's also, I think, maybe one of the, and this is odd to say, but it's probably the most mainstream weird album you'll ever ever hear. I would say that's probably pretty close to accurate. Yeah. So yeah, I remember a few months ago, you asked me if we had done a Queen album yet. And I was like, nope. And you were very surprised. Yeah. Um, I, f- I feel like we talked about one somewhere, but- I am not surprised. And the reason is pretty simple. I have never been a big Queen fan. Oh. I like some of their stuff all right, but it wasn't something I went after or tracked down or requested. I like the song Bohemian Rhapsody. It certainly is unique, but the almost constant airplay, especially over the last 30 years- Yeah drags on you. To me, it's very much in the Hotel California vein. I could go the rest of my life without hearing it, and I'd be just fine. Fair enough. But this record as a whole, however, is quite popular with fans. Yeah. You know, it was initially met with mixed critical reviews, but in hindsight, it's fairly magical when it comes to the music and the opinion about it changed over time, right? Yeah. Rolling Stone listed it as number 128 on their top 500 uh, albums of all time. And that, that seems to be a fitting placement. I know I, I rail on that that list sometimes about <laughs> how they rank records and, and who's determining that. But that seems like a fitting placement, you know, in my opinion. Sold over 6 million copies, 3 million in the U.S. alone. Yeah. And obviously, like most records, it, it's it's held up. It's buoyed by a, a very strong single. And in this case, two strong singles. Mm-hmm. You know, Bohemian Rhapsody, one of the most popular songs of all time, I would say. And You're My Best Friend. And we're going to talk about Bohemian Rhapsody at great length, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. uh, and I do think it's a great song. But how great is it? So I feel like I might need to do a judo chop on Ooh. all the songs that Matt can't stand anymore. Um, and the reasons behind it. Uh, but the only way you can hear something like that is by subscribing to our Patreon account. Yeah. So our Patreon site uh, is the only place you're going to find all the extras that we work so hard to provide. <laughs> wink, wink, wink. Um, there are Judo Chops, which are mini episodes, uh, like five to ten minutes about artists or albums or songs that uh, just don't warrant the whole treatment of a full episode of Audio Judo. There are bits that are taken out of episodes for whatever reasons, some bloopers, some full interviews, and some hopefully video content for you to enjoy as a, we'll get there. And we have uh, three tiers. Uh, there's the Shout It Out Loud tier, which would only cost you $1 in the U.S. or whatever the equivalent is of $1 in your local currency. For instance, in Australia, $1.55 Australian is currently $1. In Colombia, it is 3,895 pesos. And in Estonia, it is 15 kruni. So for that amount, you get a shout out on each episode. If you want to ramp that up to $5 a month at the front row tier, you get a shout out on each episode, early access to full episodes and access to all of the bonus content. But with a little more significant investment, $20 a month, the backstage pass tier would be yours. You get everything that is available at the other tiers, a special personalized gift from Kyle and I. But most importantly, after paying for one year, you get to host an episode of Audio Judo with me and Kyle on the album of your choosing. You can choose Pink Floyd. You can 
choose in sync. We don't care. You know, we've completed a few of these. They're a ton of fun. And we're also changing the way that we move forward with this tier as well. We used to tell everyone that you could only activate it once after a full year, but it's still a full year of patronage to use it. But if you want to stay on as a $20 a month uh, subscriber, you can, after you record an episode, after two additional years, you can use it again. So you can find that link to our Patreon account on our website, audiojudo.com, or find it on any of our socials as well. Yeah. Yeah. But Night at the Opera. Yeah. Right? So we should, should we talk about, uh, should we talk about Queen? Yeah. So for this section in my notes, I wrote, watch Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. That's and, f- and then forget everything I just watched, because very little <laughs> of it is actually true. Thanks, Hollywood. <laughs> right? It's, what's funny too is Bohemian Rhapsody got the stamp of approval from all of the remaining members of queen as like all right yeah and then they've all basically said like "Eh, no (laughs) Mm -mm. (laughs) not really no but uh in reality Mm -hmm. uh guitarist brian may formed the group uh formed excuse me formed a group called 1984 after the george orwell novel in 1964 uh with tinger uh with tinger tinger Singer Tim, Tim Staffel. Staffel. Uh, Brian left shortly afterwards to work on his degree in physics and infrared astronomy, which is awesome. Uh, totally he, makes he sense. He eventually did get that degree, and he's he's a certified genius. I mean, he really does. He's a physics like mastermind. But, he is. Yeah. Uh, but shortly after that, he started to look for a new group where uh, he could play and also help the group come up with their own original material. He formed a group called Smile with Chris Smith on keyboards and Tim Staffel again uh, on bass. They advertised for a drummer and they recruited Roger Taylor, who was a dental student. Well, they were looking for a drummer. And according to their ad, they were looking for a drummer, Mitch Mitchell or Ginger Baker type drummer, which is a huge <laughs> ask since they're hu- they're both legends. Mitchell playing drums for Hendrix, Baker finishing his first stint with Cream. And they ended up with a drummer not nearly as skilled as those guys, but would become an excellent songwriter in his own right. And probably Rod- an okay dentist, I would assume. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know I how mean, far he got into school, but... One could hope. Right. But somebody finishes at the bottom of that class. You know that. That's not true. Not every dentist or doctor... Is at the top of their class. Somebody is the last guy. I was the to get worst dentist in my class. <laughs> and they still have a practice, but yeah. go on. Chris Smith left the band in 1969 immediately before a gig at the Royal Albert Hall uh, with some bands that absolutely sound made up to me. Band called Free, which oh, how Free's generic. Awesome. I mean, they're a great band, but how generic of a name when you think about it. And then the other one was the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Do you know who's in the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band? No. Neil Innes, who was the songwriter for Monty Python. Oh. And if you've never seen The Ruddles, which that. was the the Beatles spoof, yeah. he plays the John Lennon type in the movie. He's oh. really good friends with Eric Idle. Yes, that was the Bonzo Doodah, uh, Bonzo Dog Doodah band. It still sounds completely made up to me. Like a band that you would hear, <laughs> like a band that was like made up in like a kid's cartoon. Oh, so they're Mom, so we good. Mom, we want to get tickets to go see the Bonzo Dog Doodah band. Who doesn't? Who doesn't want to go see the Bonzo Dog Doodah band? Apparently now I do, so. You should idea. Uh, so anyways, uh, Tim became friends with a fellow student at Ealing Art College named Freddie Bulsara. Mm. And in 1970, when Tim left the band, they took Freddie on as a singer. They also recruited a new bassist named Mike Gross. Uh, their first gig was at the True... I cannot ever pronounce this. Truro. 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 On June 27, 1970. <laughs> I keep pronouncing it Turo, but it's not. It's Truro. 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 Like a churro. Churro. That you. But with you, tr- t- t- tr- churro. Churro. 
So <laughs> just before this gig, uh, Freddie suggested the band change their name to Queen. And they were they were a little skeptical, but they did it anyways. Did you say that Tim Staffel had quit at that point? Uh, no. Okay. Sorry, I missed that one. He abruptly quit. Yes. Oh, yes. Because I'm sorry. He wanted to, yeah, because he wanted to pursue a band that played R&B, which is what he preferred. And he started his own band called Humpty Bong, <laughs> which, of course, no one has ever heard of. I, hum- com- I intentionally left that out because I knew whenever I said Humpty Bong, I would just... <laughs> Humpty Bong. So yeah, they changed their name to Queen, yeah. and also at the same time, Bolsara yeah. changed, changed his name. Yeah, to to what? Freddie Mercury. <gasps> I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. What? You know, he's the same guy. Yeah, crazy amazing so their early sets consisted of some new material and some covers uh mike gross left and was replaced by barry mitchell who left and was replaced by doug bogey before mm-hmm. finally john deacon joined the band in february 1971 after doug bogey left because uh, because he was quiet yes he was a good bass player he was also very quiet and he was skilled at electronics yeah three mm-hmm. important things for an up-and-coming band so uh, Freddie Mercury, Brian May, Roger Taylor, and John Deacon, the classic landed for Queen, played their first gig together on July 2nd, 1971 at Surrey College. Uh, Brian had a friend named Terry Yeaton, who was an engineer working at the, at the time, brand new Delane Lay Studios. Delane, yeah, Delane Lee Studios. Delane Lee. I yes. could, again, what is with these names? Delane Lee. Delane Lee. That's not, oh, ugh. Anyways, it, it was in <laughs> Wembley. Studio was actually looking for a band to come in and test the acoustics in a new space, and they ended up trading, hey, come in and play some stuff in here and test out the acoustics, and we'll let you record in the studio. So they recorded yep. five of their own songs, uh, Liar, Keep Yourself Alive, Great King Rat, The Night Comes Down, and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, during the recordings, uh, John Anthony visited the band with Roy Thomas Baker, uh, and they were very taken with the song Keep Yourself Alive, which is a great song, mm-hmm. uh, and began promoting the band to several record companies. Ken Testy, a promoter, uh, managed to attract the interest of Charisma Records, who offered Queen an advance of around 25,000 pounds, but the group turned them down as they realized the label would promote Genesis as a priority because they had also signed Genesis. Absolutely. Testy then entered discussions with Trident Studios, uh, Norman Sheffield, uh, sorry, entered discussions with Trident Studios' Norman Sheffield, who offered the band a management deal under Neptune Productions, a subsidiary of Trident. Get it? Mm. Neptune under Trident. A deal that would haunt them for some time. Yeah. It did enable them to use their recording facilities uh, while the management searched for a deal, but it was really a very bad contract. Trident at the time was beginning to expand into management as well, which was also bad. Uh, And Mm. under the deal, Queen were able to make use of their high-tech recording facilities. Um, Taylor later described those early times that they did get to spend in these brand new facilities as gold dust because they were, you know, they were kind of the, they kind of fell through the cracks. They kind of had to come in and record late at night or early in the morning, but it was gold time. They had top of the line engineers, they had top of the line equipment, and they were a band that didn't even have an album yet, but they had the ability to go in and like play around in the studio. However, the producers of the band clashed quite a bit at this time, uh, as Brian is a technical perfectionist and wanted a very produced sound, and the producers felt they should just come in, play the song live, record it, and get it out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually began promoting the album without being signed to a record contract, and they gigged around a bit uh, around uh, England uh, while they were trying to get 
get signed to a record deal. They finally did strike a deal with EMI Records, and they released their self-titled first album, Queen, uh, in July 1973. Some loved it, some hated it. Rolling Stones seemed to be a big fan, but (laughs) Queen kind of rode that wave up and down for a long time. Uh, The album topped out at number 32 in the UK, number 83 in the US, and while it would sell over a half million copies in the States, those sales really weren't realized until later in their career. Yeah, it was Um, definitely another one of those instances where future popularity meant that people went back looking for previous material and pushed the sales numbers up quite a bit. For sure. They immediately went back into the studio to Mm -hmm. record the follow-up record, Queen 2. Creatively named. uh, Some say this is the heaviest Queen album. It is certainly the least daring album. Subsequent albums would see them take a lot of chances musically, sometimes to great benefit, sometimes falling on their face. But this album was much more of a rock album with rock-sounding songs. While it wouldn't introduce the noted experimentation with sound styles that would be a hallmark of Queen going forward, what it did introduce was the band's signature sound of multi-layered overdubs and vocal harmonies. Yeah. It also introduced the very famous album cover featuring the members' heads in a diamond formation, something they would utilize for the music video of Bohemian Rhapsody many years later. The album uh, was released on March 4th, 1974 to improved critical response and chart yeah. position, reached number five in the UK, that's a big step, and rose to number 49 in the States. Uh, it wasn't without detractors, however. Robert Christigau mm. referred to the album as Wimpoid, Royaloid, Heavyoid, Android, Void. I have what? no idea what that means, and he probably didn't either. What drugs does Robert Christigau take, or did I, Robert Christigau take? Because I don't know. It sounds like it melted parts of his brain. Let's just say that Rob Halford, Axl Rose, and Billy Corgan named Queen 2 as their favorite Queen records. Ooh. So, you got a, a pedigree like that, Robert Christigau can just, you know, shut up. But anyway, uh, it would eventually go platinum in the States, but again, not for a very long time. Go ahead. Say, uh, shortly after that, May 1974, uh, the band was about a month into their first U.S. tour where they were opening for Mock the Hoople. Mm. Uh, Brian collapsed on stage, or just before he was supposed to go on stage, and was taken to the hospital. He was diagno- diagnosed with hepatitis. Hep- Jesus, I can't talk tonight. He was diagnosed with hepatitis, uh, and it forced them to cancel the remaining dates on that tour, which was very hurtful to them because at the time, the way, well, and still today, the way that musicians make a lot of their money is from touring because they get a much bigger percentage of the touring gross than they do from album sales most of the time. Mm -hmm. In Queen's case, they got uh, hundreds of times more from touring than they did from the album sales because of their shitty contract. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, having to cancel that tour really hurt them. While Brian recovered, the band started working on their third album. Brian returned about halfway through that process. Uh, it was called Sheer Heart Attack. It was released in November 74. This one uh, went even higher. Number two on the UK charts. It sold really well in the US and Europe as well. The single from this one, Killer Queen, a song about a high-class prostitute, mm-hmm. went to number 12 on the US Billboard Hot 100, number two on the British charts. Yeah. It, really, really well. And it's a great song. Yeah, their fortunes were improving with every record. Yeah. And that's exactly what you'd want out of a band. Yeah. But despite the fact that they were selling significant amounts of records and playing two sold out shows around the world, they were essentially broke. Mm -hmm. Their terrible deal with Trident Studios basically assured them of not seeing any money at all after Trident and EMI were paid first. Queen was essentially just a hired band at the time. They were being paid a weekly wage of about 60 pounds each. 
That's nuts. Yeah. They were so. basically living in poverty. To make it even worse, the same thing happened again, basically. So January 75, they left on a world tour and they were finally ready. They were going to make some money. They did. They were US headliners. They toured through Canada for the first time. However, uh, oh, and they hit Japan as well. But shortly after Japan, uh, Freddie came down with laryngitis and they had to bail on several dates on the tour and that hurt them again financially. It's not um, good. Yeah. So they, they the band got themselves out of that deal. They hired uh, attorneys to get them out of that deal before recording the next record. And in the meantime, they searched for new management. They thought about hiring the Man Mountain that served as Led Zeppelin's manager, <laughs> Peter Grant. Uh, if you've seen him, he is a freaking mountain. And he was eager to work with Queen and sign them to Swan Song Records. That's uh, you know, Zepp's label. But like earlier, when they thought Charisma would prioritize Genesis, they feared Grant would favor Zepp, and he most certainly would have. Uh, oh, yeah. That's biggest band in the world. Of course he would. And then they contacted John Reed, who was Elton John's manager, who accepted the position and told them to, quote, go make the best record you can while he sorted out the business, which yeah. is kind of what you want from a business person. Right. It's such go a let me quote. make music and you or I will take care of the business side. Yeah. And they entered the studio, the first of seven studios yeah. <laughs> they would utilize to make the record in August of 75 to make this record that yeah. we're going to talk about today. To create A Night at the Opera. I mean, right. it really is the, the name for this comes from a classic Marx Brothers movie, uh, which if you have the time, go watch it. It's great. It has a really famous scene where, oh shoot, I can't remember. They call it the um, dressing room scene, I think, where mm. there's like, or the stateroom scene, excuse me, the stateroom scene, where they end up with, there's this little tiny stateroom and the three brothers are trying not to be seen in the room by anybody that comes and goes. And so like uh, the maid comes in to clean and she's like in like cleaning stuff. And then like a porter comes in to drop off some bags, but they're all trying to like shuffle around one another and they end up with 15 people in this tiny room. It's really great. It's a, like a masterpiece of physical comedy. But because of this, because they chose this name and uh, Groucho Marx knew it, uh, who was still alive at this point, he actually became good friends with them. He reached out mm. to them and said, hey, you know, great job on this, on their follow-up album too. He said, you know, nice work on this. They were invited to his home in LA in 1977, only five months before he passed away, sadly. And they performed an acapella version of the song 39 from this album for him, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. So I don't know if you know that whole story. So they invited him over the house. Mm -hmm. Um, he's 85 at this point, and he comes uh, walking out to their to into his living room, and he's got a young blonde on either arm. So he's 85, walks in with a young blonde, and he sings them a bunch of his songs first. And then he yells at them. He said, you fuckers are singers, right? Sing for me. They refused, but he insisted. Then they did the acapella version of 39, which is about science fiction, which is totally fucked up. And then they discussed using one of his other movies, Duck Soup, for the title of their next record that they were going to work on. Groucho said no, but he suggested that they call it the Rolling Stones' greatest hits. <laughs> it's such a great story. Oh, that's awesome. That's uh, it was. <laughs> I was I was reading that on the plane last week. I just like laughing out loud, going, "Oh my god, that's perfect! That is absolutely perfect." <laughs> That's great. So they recorded this. It took four months, seven studios, and at the time was the most expensive album ever produced at that point. Yeah. Released November 21st, 75. It incorporated ballads, music hall sounds, Dixieland, progressive rock, folk rock, and most notably, opera. I mean, it would top the UK charts for four weeks, non-consecutively, peak at number four in the US, and produced their first UK number one, Bohemian Rhapsody. The album went triple platinum in the States, this time immediately. Didn't have to wait several years. It received 
received two Grammy nominations, winning neither. Uh, it has been called their greatest record and one of the greatest records of all time. Ranks number 128, like we said, in the top 500. And in 2018 was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, which seems weird to me considering they didn't win any Grammys for yeah. this record. Critically, still a mixed bag. Some critics loved it, called it a masterpiece. Robert Christigau, because he's back, says <laughs> the album doesn't actually botch any of a half dozen arty to heavy eclectic modes and achieves a parodic tone often enough to suggest more than meets the ear. Maybe if they come up with a coherent masterwork, I'll figure out what the more is. So I actually think that knowing him, this is a slightly more positive review <laughs> than the first if you're able to read between his bullshit lines. It's kind of hard to say, but I feel like there's like a little tinge of positivity in there. Ugh. Just, yeah, right. I'm gonna take his thesaurus away and smack uh, I'm never it. gonna stop picking on him. Yeah. So technically, <laughs> this album is a is took a ton of work to make uh, this album happen. The band utilized a ton of multi track recording, uh, stereo placement recording as well. So it's great to listen to this album in headphones because there's a lot of like stereo effects and stuff. The album was actually completed only a week before the band was supposed to leave on tour for to promote the album, A Night at the Opera. The final mix was done completely in one 36 hour mixing session which i'm sure there was no cocaine there no uh, as the group wanted to have what? some extra time to rehearse their set list before touring they had only three and a half days to rehearse for this tour at elstree and they took four hours off during those three and a half days to shoot the entire music video for bohemian rhapsody <laughs> no, there was no cocaine no not at all none mm -mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, that would that just struck me that it's like this hugely technical, like complicated thing that they spent all this time working on. Like, shit, we've only got 36 hours to mix the whole thing. Go, go, go. Let's just do it. Do it. I mean, how uh, hard could it be? I mean, Randy, <laughs> come on. You can speak to this. How hard is it to mix a record? Come on. Big deal. 36 hours. 36 hours. I mean, it's plenty of time. Crank that out. We've been working <laughs> on it for four months. We got one and a half days to do this. All right. All right. Oh, yeah. You want to talk about the album art? Yeah. So the cover features the band's logo, which was designed by Freddie Mercury on a white background. Below that in script, it says Queen and A Night at the Opera. It's pretty simple, pretty iconic. Um, right. The, the inverse of the next record. Exactly. Which was same logo, black background, white text. Exact same thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, Day at the Races. Yes. Yeah. For some reason that skipped there for a second. David Costa is credited with the art direction. Uh, I think we've spoken about him before, but I couldn't remember if it was on the Elton John episode or the Moody Blues episode. Well, there's, or maybe there's no reason why we would have spoken about him. I mean, he's been, he's worked with Elton John, Clapton, the Beatles, Hendrix, Phil Collins, the Moody Blues. You know, it's not like he worked with anybody before. No, never even so, heard of this guy. But I guess if you're queen, you go ahead and hire this guy, right? Yeah. I mean, that's quite the resume to hire a guy that's basically just going to do a little bit of typesetting since the logo had already been designed. Yeah, right. That was something that I tried to figure out is like, okay, so he gets the credit as the art direction for this, but yeah, what, what did, he, did do? he actually do? Because like, I guess, I mean, the back has a little bit a little bit on it it has the track listing and then it has some uh little bit of weird like art here and here but nice pointing by thank the way you. I've that got was my nice pen that i'm using as a fidget spinner uh <laughs> yeah i don't know what he actually did for this but huge name so gotta be great right well that's what i i figure it's gotta be great but you know if your budget is already super bloated then you really have no problem just <laughs> right. you know piling on that was something i thought was funny too is it was for the budget for the high this you know at the time was the most expensive album ever recorded 
reported mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was 40,000 pounds. 40,000. I, I was thinking like, yeah. oh shit, okay, this is going to be a lot of money. It's actually only about 300,000 pounds today. And I don't feel like, I don't like. I mean, that's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. That's like a house. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but you know, some of these people, like you look at like a Beyonce record or, mm-hmm. you know, somebody, like, somebody who's like a huge modern mega pop star. They're probably blowing a couple million dollars recording an album, right? I would say so. At least. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just on personnel and food well, and, you know. Some of those records. Entourage. Though, and- yeah, there's 80 people working on the record yeah. or more. So, yeah, that's a lot of overhead. So, when we get down to it, I'm not entirely sure why I have never got into Queen. I think part of it might be the theatrical nature of some of their stuff. Uh, that really was never my thing. And a lot of the music hall Dixieland stuff never resonated with me. I think part of it lies in the fact that when I used to listen to their albums, they had a lot of dud songs. Yeah. I never found a complete album. Each record had significant hits and some other great songs, but there were always like three or four kind of duds. When I was eight or nine, I think it was nine, uh, I loved the Flash Gordon soundtrack, right? <laughs> but at least I thought I did because my mom ended up <laughs> buying it for me and there ended up only being like two or three songs that I loved and the rest of it was just off to me. My brother had the album News of the World mm-hmm. uh, with its very graphic album cover of the giant robot holding bloody musicians. And that album came out when I was five, and it kind of freaked me out. Uh, I think they were going to have a hard time winning me over in the long run because of some serious deep-seated trauma uh, that I had. But I'm no idiot, right? I recognize the genius that was Freddie Mercury and his incredible force of will. Uh, I also know that Brian May is a super talented guitarist. So don't get me wrong, this is not an indictment of their abilities if how I cover this record seems slightly negative. Um, I just need to process some of this stuff to get me to a place that I can appreciate the album as I'm supposed to, because I do know that it's good. I do know that it's a good record. I just didn't frequently listen to it. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, that's yeah. that's always been one of my things is you can acknowledge that somebody's a genius at whatever it is they do and not like what they do. There are a lot of artists that I think are geniuses that are, you know, doing things they're they're working on a different level from most other people, but I hate their artwork. <laughs> Like, I hate you right. know, their sculptures. I hate their music. I hate their paintings. So I think that's fair. Yeah. Should we uh, take a break and come back and do it track by track? Sure. All right. We'll see you guys in a minute. All right. Today's show is brought to you by Atomic Podcast Services. Are you tired of spending hours hunched over your computer struggling to edit your podcast episodes? Do you want more time to create instead of editing? Well, we have the solution for you. Introducing Atomic Podcast Services, a premium podcast editing service that will take your show to the next level. With Atomic Podcast Services, you can say goodbye to tedious editing tasks and hello to a polished, professional-sounding podcast. They will expertly enhance your audio quality, seamlessly remove background noise, and ensure every episode sounds crystal clear. But that's not all. As part of their premium service, they will also help you with ID3 tagging, scheduling, and posting of episodes, and for a little extra, even create engaging audiograms to promote your episodes on social media platforms. There's even a discount if you subscribe to their monthly services. With Atomic Podcast Services, you'll have more time to focus on what you do best, creating incredible content. So why waste another minute struggling with complex editing software? Let Atomic Podcast Services take care of the technical side while you focus on captivating your audience. Visit their website at Atomic Pods, that's pods with a Z, dot com to learn more and book your editing session today.
Death on Two Legs, dedicated to dot, dot, dot. Who could it be? Fucking Norman Sheffield. That's who. Yeah, it is. Uh, Band's manager from 72 to 75, who seems like a real piece of work, in my opinion. Douche. Uh, Yeah. He's never mentioned my name in here. He's never directly referenced, but a lot of the the lyrics are very biting. Mm. And he basically sealed his own fate when he sued the band for defamation. Whoops. After hearing this song in the studio, before it was even released, he started filing paperwork for the lawsuit. Yeah. So he basically admitted, yeah, that's about me. I'm a huge asshole. Right. He confirmed two things. One, he read the lyrics and thought the song was about him, even though his name is never mentioned, like you said. So he must have felt a certain way about his behavior to tie it to himself. Two, they more or less confirmed that the song was indeed about him or else why settle? Yeah. You wouldn't. Bands don't usually settle because they usually win in court. So for them to settle probably means that they had a little bit of guilt about producing the song in the first place. Brian May even expressed his reservations during the recording process that the song may be a little too much. But through the years, he kind of left it unaddressed, but it had become uncomfortable. He eventually addressed it in his blog in 2014 after Sheffield had passed away, essentially apologizing for it and saying that the water had long flown under the bridge. Flown? Flew? Flown? Flown. Flung. The water had long flung under the bridge. It's flowing. Long uh, flown. That's right. I obviously I don't know exactly what Freddie Mercury felt about it, but I feel like in the early days he uh, he was still quite bitter towards Norman Sheffield because during live performances Freddie would usually dedicate the song to quote a real motherfucker of a gentleman. Mm. And it is. I wonder what that meant. Right. And it is a real motherfucker of a song. Here's what it sounds like. This is what I think the kids refer to now as a diss track. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. And it was not unheard of. Uh, the Beatles had famously had Taxman and several times name checked some government officials. Uh, Hart had <laughs> Barracuda about their shitty management. Even the prog group, yes, took their management to task with a song called 5% for Nothing. So many bands had expressed their dissatisfaction uh, with how their money was handled. But this one is a little more visceral than most. Lines like, you can kiss my ass goodbye, which is fine. I have no problem with that one. And do you feel like suicide? I think you should. Especially, it maybe takes it a little bit too far. That one, Um, yeah. But as we all know, Freddie could be a little over the top and wear his emotions on his sleeve, and he did. So this song was recorded at the Sarm East studio. Sarm was located in the Notting Hill section of London. Very well-equipped studio that hosted bands like ABC, Rush, Yes, Art of Noise, and The Buggles. The Buggles producer Trevor Horn liked the studio so much that he ended up buying it. Oh. Uh, and it was also the location for the recording of Do They Know It's Christmas, the song for Famine Relief in the 1980s. Oh, and like that. most, like most studios, it closed 
closed in 2001. Like most studios. Uh, it's just closed. You played the clip, but musically, when it starts, the song starts out with this very intricate, almost classical piano part played by Mercury, uh, yeah. followed by some weirdo guitar noises uh, before the song starts properly. And the first thing about kind of right at the top is the way the guitar is pushed forward in the mix. The guitar solo starts the song before you get one word of lyrics. It's an interesting kind of compositional turn, but it serves as a full open to the record as here's Queen before you get here's Freddie. Yeah. And when Freddie kicks in, you can almost hear him sneering these vocals. <laughs> and then you get this peppering of vocal harmonies and multi-track layers bouncing from speaker to speaker. It's clear from the beginning that they are going to use every possible trick they can. I've listened to some of their live stuff, and it doesn't sound as full, obviously, but you never know how much of the live stuff has been sweetened. Yeah. So I'm not sure how close to the actual experience it really is. I would have liked to see them live with him and hear what this song sounded oh, like. That would have been um, such a great concert, right? Yeah. What strikes me about this song is really kind of how all over the map it really is. It's hard to follow in places. There are little subsections and themes underneath. It's kind of hard to sort through. It's a good song. It's a good start. It's just, it's a little manic for me. The way it's like kitchen sink. Yeah. Like everything well, came flying at it. I kind of feel like this whole album is a little bit like that. Every song, they had time, they had resources, they had, you know, True. and Brian's perfectionism, just, well, let's try it again. Let's do this. Let's do that. I feel like it all kind of came together here. And I think that after this, it gets a little bit better, but I think this was kind of the, 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 the inflection point for it. One of the things that I've always thought probably kills a lot of art is suddenly having a whole bunch of resources to create that art. <laughs> like weird, as weird as that sounds, but you create art because you're struggling because you're having like a tough time being like, oh, hey, I can only play for a few minutes a day. So I have to learn to like write quickly and play my music as quickly as I possibly can. But then right. when it's like, oh, you can play whenever you want. Well, now suddenly you don't want to play because you're like, well, I can do this whenever I want. You know, I don't have any structure anymore. And then, yeah, I kind of feel like that's what happened here, which resulted in a, you know, an okay album or a pretty good album in my opinion. But yeah, mm -hmm. I feel like this was kind of the first point that happened for them. So but I can buy that. Uh, one thing that's always kind of stuck out to me is uh, the lyric, a barrow boy. Barrow. Um, yeah. I was a hundred percent certain this was a weird sex thing. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just literally a boy who sells fruit out of a wheelbarrow in a marketplace in London. Uh, just a barrow boy. Yeah. Weirdly not used until the first use recorded is 1939. Oh, wow. I would have thought what? that was a way older term. Yeah, me too. But according to Webster, it used first in 1939. So maybe it was a, in common parlance, but not written down until then. But yeah. Did you so, just look that up? Just now? Yeah. No, I looked it up a few days ago. Oh. <laughs> All that typing was me remembering I needed to do the Patreon lookup. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it. I've got it ready to go this time. <laughs> okay. uh, lazing on a Sunday afternoon. Immediate right turn to the whole theme of the album. Right it's turn. A weird vaudevillian intro yeah. song. Uh, you know, pianos of vocals by Freddie. A minute long. Yeah. Uh, they did this weird little trick where they recorded all of the vocals and then played them back through a set of headphones in a bucket somewhere else in the studio and then picked mm. it up on a microphone. So it gives it this old timey megaphone sound. 20s, 30s. Yeah. Yeah. And we've heard this kind of music hall stuff before with the Beatles. Even Elton John did some of this as well. Yeah. So it doesn't feel that unique. But 
But the vocals, it's a cool trick to play it out of a bucket. And it seems to be, there's two sides of this Freddie Mercury coin. This, the first track is just a vicious takedown. And this one is as sweet as can be. Yeah, you know? it's, it's fun. You, He's screwing around. You never know which guy you're going to get. Is this song auto, autobiographical? Or is it just a wonderful little story? I don't know. Yeah. One thing I do think explains a lot about where their mood was when they were recording this was, so obviously it's called A Night at the Opera after a Marx Brothers movie. Mm-hmm. Apparently they watched a lot of old movies like Marx Brothers and uh, Charlie Chaplin and stuff like that in the studio. In the studio. While they were playing. So they had a, 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 an old style projector, a film mm-hmm. projector, and they would have people bring in, you know, copies of all these old movies and they would watch them. And suddenly when you know that, you're like, oh yeah, of course they're going to watch an old timey movie and then be like, what would be the theme song to this? And there'd be a weird like, I go off to work on Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that is this pretty is the close kind of shit that they're going to make. Like, <laughs> pretty close to what it sounds like, too. I know, right? Well, it sounds like this. But it's it's a fun little song. It's short, but it is it's weird. It's weird, and it, it's literally a, a ninety degree right turn from what the intro song is. Mm-hmm. And then they do it again. <laughs> they turn another ninety degrees for the next track. I'm in love with my car. Seriously, which, who the fuck is this band? Right. I can't tell at all if they're trying to be cheeky or if they're serious about all this because this is essentially three songs in a row that sound nothing like one another and could easily be considered three different bands. This song was written and sung by Roger, uh, drummer Roger Taylor. He also played rhythm guitar on the track. And when he presented it to the band, Brian May, like me, thought this was a joke. Yeah. I mean, I've got my my hand on your grease gun. It is so hokey. The lyrics for this were actually inspired by one of the band's roadies, uh, Jonathan Harris, whose Triumph TR4 was evidently the love of his life. Mm -hmm. The song is dedicated to him with the album saying, dedicated to Jonathan Harris, boy racer to the end. Mm -hmm. But Taylor, who also loved cars, this is most likely a metaphor for sex song. Oh. And not just a car song. The sounds heard at the very end of the song, the revs of the motor, those are from Taylor's car at the moment. Yeah, in a little red Alfa Romeo. Yeah. But this song is famous for other reasons. Hmm. Taylor loved this song so much that he insisted on it being released as a single, but not just any single. He wanted this song to be the B-side to Bohemian Rhapsody, as he clearly knew the value of that song before it was released. The band refused, so he did what any logical person would do, not high on cocaine. He locked himself in a cupboard until they agreed to his demands. And apparently it worked. Because they did. Because this is the B-side to Bohemian Rhapsody. And what a coup this was, because now, with this song as the B-side, every single copy of Bohemian Rhapsody that was sold would earn Taylor, as the sole composer of this song, the exact same royalties as Bohemian Rhapsody earned. Yeah. Eventually, that would soar into the millions of dollars range and pissed off the rest of the band. This eventually led the band to change their songwriting structure on later albums, so the entire band was credited for each song and the royalties were split. Bands have broken up for less than this. Yeah. And I'm very surprised that he got away with it. That is a huge coup. I still am curious to know, and obviously I don't think, I I couldn't find anything about it, so I don't know whether anybody's come out and said it or not. He had to know, obviously, that that's how it was going to work out. But did the rest of the band really register 
capture that like consciously and be like, oh yeah, if we put this on there, he's going to make a lot of money off of this. Or were they still in the mindset of, we're kind of trying to make things work. Maybe that'll take off. Maybe it won't. We don't know yet. But yeah, let's just give it to him because he's being kind of a whiny baby about this. I think they just gave it to him because he was being a whiny baby. And there may or may not have been a lot of cocaine going <laughs> use going on. So they, they, you know, okay, just give it to him. Maybe he'll <laughs> shut up. So a couple of other things I learned while listening to this song. Hmm. Taylor is really an overrated drummer. And John Fair. Deacon is a really underrated bass player. Hmm. Okay. Some of Taylor's work is really sloppy, not on par with many of the other huge drummers of the day, but Deacon is often overlooked because he was the quiet one. But as we will see, he had an incredible musical mind and created some of the most famous melodies in their catalog. Yeah. Besides so, songs on this one, he also wrote Another One Bites the Dust. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. right. this is what I'm in love with my car sounds like. So I know you said that uh, you think this is probably a metaphor for sex. Yes, 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 I do. I think that dude, Jonathan Harris, probably wanted to actually fuck his car. <laughs> so that is, uh, there's a, uh, uh, have you ever heard of a paraphilia? No. Paraphilia is the sexual interest in objects. All right. So paraphiliacs are people who are very interested in having sex with certain objects. They have hundreds of subcategories of pedophilia, sorry, not pedophilia, paraphilia, paraphilia. Interesting. There's a subcategory subcategory called mechanophilia, which is sexual attraction to cars or other machines. All right. I, I'm I just something saying. New. I learned I'm, something new every day. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, I mean, if it was that out in public, mm. maybe he really wanted to. Maybe he did. Matthew, you're my best friend. Aww. Is the name of the next song. Oh. Sorry. Here we see the musical strengths of John Deacon. This song was written by Deacon about his wife, Veronica Tetzlaff, and it is without question my favorite Queen song. Sung by Mercury, but composed by Deacon, it has such a wonderful, innocent quality to it, and I absolutely love this song. It was released as a single, reached number seven on the UK charts and number 16 on the Billboard Top 100. It would eventually become a million-selling single. Not too shabby for a guy that was just learning how to play the piano when he wrote it. (laughs) Deacon was learning how to play the piano in the studio, but when he went home for the evening, he didn't have a piano at home. Instead, he had a Wurlitzer electric organ, the instrument that he plays on the song. And it is the thing that gives the song such a unique quality to it. 
Famously, Mercury was asked by Deacon to play on the song, but refused because he hated the way the Wurlitzer sounded. And he said, why would you play that thing when there was a perfectly good grand piano right in front of you? But it's that sound that makes the song. And for obvious reasons, it has been used in hundreds of movies and TV shows and probably hundreds of thousands of weddings and anniversary parties. Yeah, it's a great little song. And again, yet another 90 degree turn on this album. And it sounds like this. song right that little coup right there too that oh just stands out every time to me pretty sure i've used it in a couple of videos (laughs) through the years it's just a great song it just lends itself well to the montage yeah it does (laughs) it fits so well with it it's great uh 39 brian may has called this song a sci-fi skiffle inspired by the writer herman hess which i think that is a very nerdy but accurate way to describe (sighs) this song uh, you you hate this song, don't you? No. I can tell you, you strongly dislike this song. No. It, so we go from this wonderfully bouncy little number to a sci-fi folk song with lead <laughs> vocals by Brian May that kind of veers into Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young territory. Sure. It definitely gives off a late 60s hippie kind of vibe with its astronaut lyrics. And if you didn't know that Brian May was an astronomer, you would just guess that he was probably taking some serious acid when he wrote this. <laughs> and it's just a trip, a la Moody Blues in Search of the Lost Chord, yeah. which is, by the way, is episode number 91 of Audio Judo for anyone out there looking for more info on that record. Nice plug. So this was the song that Queen sang for Groucho at his home. Mm-hmm. Other things of note, John Deacon learned to play stand-up double bass for this song after May had suggested it half-joking. Like, you know what would be really great on this song? Double bass. And then the next day he's in the studio with a double bass learning how to play it. Also, I don't know if you saw this, if you count all of the songs from their previous albums in a row, this is the 39th song. Ooh, that's a good bit of trivia. I don't know if it was intentional or not. Uh, he does reference the year 1939 right at the beginning of the song, but he could easily retcon that if he wanted to marry that up with the 39th song. Who knows, yeah. right? The song is about an astronaut who travels to a distant place at near the speed of light and because of time dilation that takes place at these speeds he and his crew return home 100 years later and everybody's dead it's very physicist of him it's 39 is also a significant year because 1939 is the year einstein wrote his letter saying if we don't develop a nuclear bomb the enemy will and they will destroy us all Ooh, and because of more good trivia 
that literally started the U.S. on the path to building a nuclear bomb, which the Germans were kind of already researching and kind of had a pathway there, but Hitler wasn't particularly interested in pursuing it because he thought that it was going to be unnecessary. And then they lost the war, U.S. dropped bombs on the Japanese and what right. might be one of the most horrific events in human history. And then we started the Cold War and, you know, and shit happened. Are. And Bob's your uncle. Yeah. But uh, I think that it's interesting that this is, uh, uh, that you're not a big fan of this song because this is legitimately one of my top 10 favorite songs of all time and really? my favorite Queen song. <laughs> I didn't say that I didn't like it. So just not, I'm a just big, not a fan. Just not a fan. All right. I'm a big fan of the 12 string on this song. Mm -hmm. One other thing people need to know, the very high vocal parts are not performed by Freddie Mercury. In fact, whenever you hear the really high pitched wail on Queen songs, that is almost always Roger Taylor, mm -hmm. not Freddie Mercury, including Bohemian Rhapsody. But yeah, I don't not like it. It's a, it's a fine song. It just, again, it's out of place. It feels like this this could have been five years before. Sounds like this. Honestly, don't know why this one struck me so strongly, but I remember as a little kid, this and Bohemian Rhapsody were the two songs that I would always come back to on this album, hmm. and it's stuck with me since. Well, that's good. I mean, I, I don't not like it. It was weird too. Many years later, because I'm talking six, seven, eight years old, maybe when I first heard this song and mm -hmm. would listen to that cassette over and over and over again. It was weird. Many years later, learning like that Brian May was, you know, a physicist, and then oh, actually, this song is about like you know space travel and <laughs> the time dial effect and the theory of relativity and it's like oh but it doesn't right. sound like that weird it sounds like an old-timey ship sailing song it does it does have a bit of a sea shanty song <laughs> a sea shanty song sweet lady sweet lady sea shanty song two songs in a row written by brian may and my vote immediately goes to the previous one <laughs> yeah this is I, this is kind of a dud i don't care for this song it's one of those songs that that, that the dud that creeps into their albums it's a up-tempo rocker unusually in three-quarter time for most yeah. of the song which which i guess would make this swing tempo it does revert back to 4-4 four, four for the choruses, but it has no center. It's got no life. It's weird. And then let's take a look at the lyrics, shall we? Sure. I mean, we know that it's about a relationship in which there are many fights, and this is a look from both partners' perspectives. And that's all well and good. I like those songs. I have no problem with that. But when you get these lyrics, you call me up and feed me all the lines. You call me sweet like I'm some kind of cheese. You call me sweet like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm some, some kind of cheese. I feel like there are about a hundred other things that could have replaced cheese in that line, but to each his own. In fact, it was covered briefly in the movie. Yeah. Roger 
Roger Taylor responding to Brian May making fun of his lines from "I'm in love with the in love with the car, my car." He says, "Well, what about this cheese line?" And Brian May basically responds, "It's smart. I like it. It's a good line." I'm <laughs> seriously. Uh. The other thing that I'm uh, noticing is that the use of the multi-layered vocal harmony thing that they do, it's starting to wear on me a little bit. You know, when you hear it in Bohemian Rhapsody, it's overwhelming because you, you, you're you hearing it standing alone. Yeah. Uh, and it fits in the sound of that song and the narrative so well. But when you hear it in every single song on the record, it starts to get tired and it starts to become a bit of a crutch. Like we have no other ideas. Let's just do 19,000 vocal layers on the song. Just keep layering. Let's just keep layering. And just gets a little old. Yeah, Sweet Lady sounds like this. Sounds it does sound like Kiss to me. It did. It does sound a little bit. bit like a Kiss song. Yeah, yeah and it's it's, it's like definitely it. like I feel like this is the dud from this album. No offense to to anybody involved, but I definitely feel like this one could have been left off, and we would have been better off as a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I think so too. I think we would have had a much better time. And then uh, suddenly back to another vaudeville number, Seaside Rendezvous. This is such a weird little song to f- end out the first side of the album. Could have easily come from the 30s. Yeah. Right. Song was written by Freddie Mercury. Under his uh, vaudevillian music hall influence, the song is probably best remembered for its jazz band bridge section performed Mm -hmm. vocally by Mercury and Roger Taylor in the middle part of that song. The song's musical bridge section was performed entirely by Mercury and Taylor using their voices alone, with Taylor at one point hitting the highest note on the whole album, a C6. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's high, I know. Mercury (laughs) imitates woodwind instruments, including a clarinet, Taylor voices mainly brass instruments such as tubas and trumpets, even a kazoo. The tap dance segment is also performed by Mercury and Taylor on the mixing desk with thimbles on their fingers. <laughs> Mercury plays both grand piano and jangle honky-tonk piano. Jangle honky-tonk. This is one of the very few Queen songs in the catalog without Brian May participating at all. So I guess I'm not sure who Freddie Mercury is at this point. But <laughs> there's so little on this record that he is putting forth that is rock. You've got Dixieland ragtime you're gonna have opera and i just feel like he's experimenting all over the place and seeing what lands and while this sounds sounds really good it's not something that i would ever listen to over and over again because it isn't the style style of music that i would gravitate to and that's part of the reason why i probably didn't listen to entire records by queen and was just satisfied to to hear whatever i heard on the radio Mm. well it sounds like this
no, there's no cocaine in that. There's in that no studio cocaine at all. None. Uh, a couple of lines in here. C'est la vie, madames et messieurs. It's French for that's life, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Très charmant translates to very charming. Uh, très charmant. Très charmant. Mm-hmm. Also, Valentino. <laughs> I'll be your Valentino. He does name check. Uh, Ralph Rudolph Valentino, famous silent era movie star who was a big sex symbol. Yes, he was. Should we, uh, syphilis. Yeah. Should we flip this one? Uh, should we flip this album over? Yeah, maybe? let's flip it. Flip it. The Prophet's Song. This song, originally titled People of the Earth mm-hmm. and composed by Brian May, is not only the longest song on the record, but the longest song in the Queen catalog. Over two minutes longer than Bohemian Rhapsody, clocking in at almost eight and a half minutes. The song was written, allegedly, by May after he had a fever dream when recuperating from that bout of hepatitis that took him off the road uh, while they were recording Sheer Heart Attack. The song is famous for two things, I think. May's innovative use of delay and effects throughout the whole song. He played an instrument called called the Toy Koto on this song, which is a sort of Japanese stringed instrument that makes a very beautiful sound. Hmm. The wind at the beginning of the song is actually the sound of the studio air conditioner recorded and run through a phaser. <laughs> so that's fun. The other thing is the acapella section of the song that is actually two and a half minutes of running time that is every bit as complicated as the sections on Bohemian Rhapsody. Three-part harmonies, tape delays, all kinds of stuff going makes it quite the listen. Lyrically, that section isn't as rich as the part in Bohemian Rhapsody, but the attention to detail, the unique sounds, the amount of work that went into it rival pretty much anything else on the record. Oh, yeah. Because of the way this worked back in the 70s, in order to do these multi-track, multi-layering things, you couldn't just do it like you can now, where you're just like, ah, just add more tracks into, into my you know <laughs> audio software. Right. This album, they actually upgraded to a 24-track tape machine, specifically because they needed the additional eight tracks uh, over the 16-track machine that they had used previous to this. And they used it, uh, so not in this song, but in Bohemian Rhapsody, they required 200 tracks for overdubs. Mm -hmm. So that is six, uh, sorry, nine full cassettes that they had to keep, not cassettes, uh, reel-to-reel tapes that they had to keep overdubbing and overdubbing and overdubbing and overdubbing. They burned through literally miles of tape making this album because it wears out. It's physical. It wears out over time. The more you over-record and erase and over-record and erase, it wears out. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me that not only were they able to do it, that they had the patience to do it, that they were able to complete it in the amount of time that they did, but that it sounds as good as it does. Uh, Because a lot of times, you know, when you do these type of effects, it wears out the equipment, it wears out the tape and you have to do it over and over and over again, it's going to sound crappier and crappier and crappier every time, mm-hmm. unless you take a lot of care to make sure that it doesn't. And they obviously did because it sounds great and it sounds like this.
So uh, Roy Thomas Baker added uh, added this regarding Mercury's vocal. He starts off singing in the center, and then the first delay starts to the left, then the second delay goes to the right, and then he can sing and make three-part harmonies just by harmonizing with himself as it comes back around into his headphones. So the delay was done by using two stereo Studer machines. They were still running the tape from one reel to the other, the way you'd normally run on a tape machine, whereas you run it from one reel through and then off the machine and then straight to a different machine and then playing back on a different machine so the tape would actually be laying across the room. There were a few chairs and lamps and coat hooks around that we hooked it over until we ended up with the right delay. He had to perform it live, so it's being performed live with the delays in his headphones and he could hear it so he could sing along with it and then harmonize with the vocals when it came back around to him. That's freaking nuts. To get that right, that's absolutely insane. I need another coat hook. We need to add four more inches to this tape before it goes into the machine. <laughs> it's Man. super impressive. And the, the part goes on a bit too long for my taste, but it's amazing and groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. And the end of the song fades into the next song. Yeah, Love of My Life. Uh, so it's even, it even feels like a longer song. Interestingly, they continued a lot of those effects. Uh, Brian plays the harp in this song, and he played mm-hmm. it chord by chord, and then they cut and pasted physical tape together to make make it sound like an instrument. It's just a lovely song, though, yeah. right? The song was allegedly written about Mary Austin, who Freddie Mercury had a long-term relationship with and would end up being his personal assistant and lived with him for years, inheriting the bulk of his estate when he passed in 1991. Yeah. I think it's what I love most about Mercury's compositions. I can do with a lot of the preening and theatrical stuff. And let's just get down to when he writes a simple, beautiful melody with wonderful, simple instrumentation. There's such a great quality to it that like, if I'm going to listen to Queen, that's the kind of Queen that I'm probably going to gravitate to. This song still gets performed by Queen with May handling the lead vocals, but most of the time the crowd kind of steps in and sings it for him. And it becomes a very emotional moment uh, in the show. I've seen footage of when Queen and Adam Lambert perform at the, did perform at the theater that I'm currently employed at and it's just it's a it's it's kind of numbing it's like whoa just that whole thing so yeah they, they do cool. it with a giant video projection of freddie singing the song as well right yeah yeah it looks like a cool moment yeah it is and this sounds like this i will be there at your side to remind you how i still love you i still I think that this is a, a very wonderful little love letter to somebody that was obviously, you know, super important to Freddie. And it's always been kind of sad to me that so many people rag on Freddie Mercury for leaving her behind when he, you know, started to come out. And mm-hmm. he didn't. He didn't. He never really did. He, he took her along with him. And it, it kind of implies in Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie, that, you know, he did. And then they got back together later on. And that's not really the case. They were No, always... he just took care of her. They were best friends. Exactly. Yeah. And she was his caretaker when he was ill yeah that was a special a very special relationship for sure yeah you might even call it good company you might but (laughs) that just might be the name of the next song it might a weird dixieland jazz number with a ukulele because why the fuck not it sounds like this
of the very rare Queen songs that doesn't feature Freddie Mercury at all. At all. At all. Didn't write it, didn't work on it, wasn't even in the studio when they made it. It's a blend of Dixieland jazz, uh, sung by Brian May, telling the story of a man who is taught to treasure his friends, but eventually becomes obsessed with his work and alienates them. Hmm. wonder if that is a little autobiographical. Hmm. But he uses his guitar to such benefit. So he uses his guitar to produce horn and woodwind sounds. One good example is using a, he uses a wah pedal to simulate mute trumpets. And it's one of the main reasons that their first few records would state on them no synthesizers were used in the making of this record. Because people thought they were using synths to recreate the woodwind and horn sounds or actual string sections. And none of that was true. It was all Dr. Brian May, guitar and effects noodler. Uh, This is definitely not one of my favorite songs on the record. Yeah, me either. It's interesting, (laughs) too, that there's this little number Mm -hmm. that immediately leads into Bohemian Rhapsody. This song is buried yeah. on this. It's the t- <laughs> 11th song. And we, you know, we finally get to it, right? The reason you are all here today, yeah. the behemoth of a song that has become part of the zeitgeist that countless people will perform at karaoke tonight all around the world yeah. that made Michael Myers a household name and seems to come back every 15 years or so to make another dent on the chart. Yeah. Essentially a mock opera that Mercury developed from three separate songs that he was writing and just jammed them together into one. The song charted in the UK in 1975 at number one, in 1991 at number one, in 2018 at number 45, 2019 at number 64, and the all-time singles chart in the UK at number three. In the U.S., it was number nine in 1975, number two in 1992, number 33 in 2018, and is generally considered to be among the top three rock songs ever released. Stairway to Heaven and people say Hotel California, and I just don't want to talk about it. So it is physical and digital sales in the tens of millions of copies with streams in the hundreds of millions or even billions by now. It's a juggernaut. After the release of Bohemian Rhapsody in 2018, it became the most streamed song from the 20th century. Am I right? (laughs) I mean, you know, that's, oh, you know, only the entirety of all modern pop music uh, until the millennium. You know, this became the most most stream song out of all of that. Right. You touched on this, right? There are over 200 individual tracks used on this song with 180 used for vocal tracks alone where May, Mercury, and Taylor would record vocal tracks for 10 to 12 hours a day. Yeah. The level of work for this song alone rivaled most albums by 10. Yeah. Just this song. And we all know how it showed up in Wayne's world and became a cultural touchstone. But what is it about, Kyle? Ooh. So let's start with the very obvious stuff that we can identify before we talk about some of the more esoteric and metaphorical interpretations, right? Sure. In its simplest form, it is a retelling of the Faust legend. Yes. The Faust legend, for those who don't know, is a German story of a man who is dissatisfied with his life and therefore makes a deal with the devil, exchanging his soul for unlimited knowledge and or worldly pleasures. We have seen this story countless times. The movie Crossroads, about Robert Johnson. The music from, uh, musical from the 1950s, Damn Yankees. A children's version of the story by Hans Christian Andersen called The Little Mermaid. Countless versions of it in song. And most importantly, a musical called Faust, mm-hmm. written by Randy Newman and starring Don Henley as the titular character. That is the most important. <laughs> right? Randy we have references. Newman. We have re- I love Lily. I love Lily. <laughs> So we got references. Maybe you're down. (laughs) Maybe you have got a frown. 
Sorry. So we have references to Beelzebub, right? Another name for the Mm -hmm. devil. Or more specifically, a major demon in mythology and not necessarily the devil himself. And I have to stop myself for a second because I feel like there is very little, I feel like there is very little that I can say about this song that hasn't been said already. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think I have new knowledge about it. It's been poured over for almost five decades. What kind of impact can I really have? But it's all the window dressing that takes the stage. So many people that think that this song is the song that Mercury used to come out of the closet, right? Mm. So many people say that he used this song to reveal who he actually was through metaphor and storytelling. And I personally, I'm not going to weigh in on that aspect of it because I don't see it. Maybe I'm oblivious to it. So Kyle, what? tell me about this song. What do you, what do you I have? I gotta be honest with you. I saw that as well. I It's never struck me as that before. I don't see it here either, but maybe, I mean, you know, a lot of times, even if somebody doesn't do something intentionally, if you have something about yourself that you're trying to either cover up or release secretly, you end up working that into things in ways that you're not even thinking about. So maybe okay. in that way, but I don't think he ever said specifically, like, oh yeah, that was what I was trying do with this well in in his defense he never revealed really what any of his songs were about yeah he went out of his way to say i will never tell people what i was thinking that's not my place yeah basically saying it means to you whatever you need it to mean to you and not what i intended yeah. because because it's songs for you so i spent a lot of time reading a bunch of that stuff where they're like you know the line where he says he just killed a man he was really killing part of himself yeah. and stuff like that and i'm like no he wrote it like an opera what's an opera if it isn't tragic yeah and he references a bunch of other tragic operas too scaramouche Scaramouche, right who's the clown from uh, commedia dell'arte who if you don't know is like a tragic figure in that uh figaro yeah figaro principal character from uh uh, the barber of seville and the marriage of figaro like you mentioned already beelzebub uh, maybe one of the most classic tragical characters he also mentions galileo who Mm -hmm. was a tragic figure in you know real life Uh, that persecuted (laughs) yeah beliefs. So really go listen to this whole song because I couldn't pick a really good spot, but here's a clip. So I cut that clip off right before they get there. But uh, the word bishmila, bishmila, it's an Arabic word, uh, which is uh, the noun from a phrase in the Quran. Bishmila ra rahamani ra rahim. I hope I am pronouncing that right, but I'm sure I'm not. But it translates to "In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful." I was a hundred percent sure that was just a made up like bishmila. But uh, it's interesting that it's an actual real phrase. Yeah, he was not Muslim. Uh, he was very, he was Zoroastrianism, I believe, because mm-hmm. he grew up in Zanzibar. But it's hard to talk about this song to some degree because it has taken on 
a life of its own that's almost bigger than Queen themselves. Yeah. Like anyone on the street, name a Queen song. That's the one they're going to. Yeah. It's become this thing. And I and I started off this episode by basically saying I could go my the rest of my life without hearing it again because I don't need to. Yeah. It is one of those songs that is now forever ingrained in your head. You know every bit of it. You know every part of it. And it, it is a vital song. It's an important song. And I, I didn't want people to think that I don't like it because I don't want to listen to it anymore. I just don't have to. It just it will be there for all time. Yeah. It's played, like you said, it's played so often. How many people do you think know the lyrics to this song by heart that have never actively sat down and been like, oh, I'm going to go listen to Bohemian Rhapsody? Uh, uh, lots of people. <laughs> and then you wonder how many people actually know the words by heart or just think they know the words by heart and how many of those words are they actually getting wrong? Yeah. Bishmila. Right. There's plenty of stuff in there. Yeah. And I didn't have any more notes for this song because it's just yeah. not much more you could say how, about it. How else do we cover this? You know, I mean, you don't. we're done. Yeah. Uh, wrap it up. God <laughs> save the queen. Final track on the album. Yeah. Instrumental version of the UK national anthem. Yeah. Brian originally recorded this at Trident Studios in 74 uh, before they were doing, uh, while they were working on Sheer Heart Attack, before they went out on tour for it. I could not figure out for sure if this is just that version or if they re-recorded it, but it seems to me like they probably took that original recording and maybe, you know, juiced it up a little bit in the studio. They probably did. It's a very cool sound because it's got tons of layered guitars on it. Yeah. Right? He ended up playing this song on the roof of Buckingham Palace in 2002 during the Queen's Golden Jubilee. To which she asked May if, quote, he was the one making all that racket up there. (laughs) She then proceeded to go down the reception line filled with rock's finest guitarists and came to Jimmy Page and asked him if he was, quote, also a musician. (laughs) That is a classic line by the Queen, and this is a classic Queen album. Yeah, couldn't pick a, a really good spot out of this one, so here's the whole thing. So that is a night at the opera. Yeah. A couple of duds and the hits are enormous, but it's a well-crafted and genius album. I do like the record. It isn't something I would string together and listen to. Yeah. It's definitely disjointed. And like, you know, like I kept saying, every song takes our 90 degree turn from the one before it. Yeah. But it's worth a listen. It's very, it was so influential and the hits are huge. And the misses are still fun ditties, I guess, you know? Yeah, but, you know, that being said, it is, as well as the band itself, 
they deserve their place among rock royalty because it's an incredible band and they had a great string. Yeah. A, a really good run. But you should tell us what you think about it. Please do. Tell us what you think about Queen, what you think about A Night at the Opera, or anything else musical that you may have on your mind. You can get a hold of us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash audio judo, on X at audio judo, or on Instagram at audio underscore judo, or you could send us an email at info at audio judo.com. We usually respond to those pretty quickly. You got any shout outs over there? We do have some shout outs. Diane and Simon C, our UK consultant, both at the Shout Out Loud tier. Thank you both so much for supporting the podcast. Michael A at the Front Row Seats tier. Uh, thank you for supporting the podcast. Christian S, David W, Kristen K, Michael S, and Scott K, all at the Backstage Pass tier. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. Why are you waggling your finger and then checking the tone? <laughs> so we have episodes coming out from uh, Manchester Orchestra, Ooh. from the Scissor Sisters. Oh, yeah. Forgot and My Bloody one. Valentine. Yeah, you picked that one. And some other band that I have no idea what the hell that is. Yeah, I saw it on the fun. calendar. I'm like, uh, Make it okay. Matthew listen to pop music, but... <laughs> <sighs> Please don't. I'm going to be no. honest with you. It's not the greatest album ever. It's not wonderful, but uh, it's it's an interesting album. I might tweak it just a little bit, though. So, All right. Because I know that one's uh, a few months away. It is. Well, yeah, a couple months. So, November, uh, we, so we hope that you stick around. Other than that, we will talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, uh, bye-bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.